pleasure to be joined this morning by Jalika Sheikh. Jalika is a girl I've known for five years or so and someone who I've had huge respect for. So when I met Jalika, she was a second year undergrad on my sport business management degree and she's since gone on to complete an undergrad and then a master's in sport business management and become university president and done lots of amazing things. But she's also been involved in refugee football and she's had some international experience and has been involved considerably uh, more so on a regular basis with people in Preston. Um, she's one of the most networked and capable people that I know. She's a great communicator, she's a great leader, but still relatively young and depth and breadth of experience that's inspiring to see. So I wanted to speak to her this morning to ask her questions specifically about refugee football for a project that I'm working on. And Zalika, I thought I'd just welcome you to this conversation and ask you firstly if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved in the refugee football community in Preston. Thank you, Joel. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's Zalika. Like Joel said, I am really passionate about increasing life chances for underrepresented and marginalised communities. That really drives everything I do. And if I can do that through sport, you know, even better. So I'm currently the president at the University of Central Lancashire Students' Union. And this is my second year and I can't run for any, any longer. So I've got, to, I've got to enter the football industry one day. And I'm currently serving on the FA Asian Women in Football Steering Group, trying to get more South Asians into football, coaching, refereeing and leading the the game so so that's going really well at the minute and we're seeing you know really good breakthroughs into the into the Premier League and, and, and non-league so I'm currently also doing some bits with um, Active Lancashire and I've just been appointed a non-executive director there looking at tackling health inequalities in Lancashire so trying to make sure that I'm doing my bit to make sports more accessible and helping others rebuild their lives so I'm really really pleased to be here with Joel today to talk about all the you know different experiences that I've had you know locally, nationally, and internationally uh, during my time as a student. Brilliant. And if you could just paint a picture of what the refugee program looks like, so like how many people go, where it takes place, how many coaches are involved, and how many people generally contribute to the organisation of that program. This lady saw a lot of um, young men, well, from the ages of like 18 all the way to 50, I wouldn't say young, you know, quite a big range. And she thought, right, what can they do? You know, they, they literally got nothing to do. Um, they go to college and then they go back home. So she she said, what do you want to do? So she spoke to them and they said football. And there was no provision in, it in Preston for specifically refugee and asylum seeker football. And she contacted the Sir Tom Finney Soccer Centre because her son was playing there for the under nines. And they said, OK, let's have a look at this. So they, they, they found a grid on you know, a Friday night and from there it's just grown, really. And through word of mouth, through the communications, each president's college with the ESOL students and, and the British Red Cross, they're able to you know, create some good communication channels and help the numbers. So, so that's how it kind of started. There is around uh, 40 refugees, asylum seekers that are like registered, around 25 may turn up on, a, on an average Friday night between 7 and 8 o'clock. It's totally free for them to attend. They get the football kits, they get the, the socks, the, the boots, everything's provided and they're coached by uh, Youthland students. So everything's student-led in that way. And it, it's a brilliant opportunity for them to build connections and a lot of them have said, you know, it helps me forget my problems. A lot of them are going through really tough situations, still waiting for the asylum paperwork to be processed. And this is a, an opportunity one hour a week for them to really connect with others and, and build some friendships. I want to ask you a question about the, the impact that you, you believe it's had or maybe the evidence to support that. But when the university 
has official visitors. What a university will generally do is showcase what they believe to be the best aspects of the university. So it'll be the nice shiny buildings, it'll be the success stories of the university. And there was a member of the British royal family. Was it Prince Harry? Yes, Prince Harry, he... Um... Prince Harry, yeah, I'm not, you can say I'm not, I don't really follow the British royal family, but they came to visit UCLan a few years ago, didn't they? And they, they saw this programme, didn't they? Is that right? Yeah, they did. And they were impressed with basically what, what they were offering because there is a lack of provision just generally in the UK for, for refugee football. And they came to see, you know, what the model looks like in Preston. And some of the refugees themselves got, got the chance to speak to, to Prince Harry. So I think having a bit of national coverage about, about that, that visit helped boost that, boost that club uh, and also the, the participants. And aside from the shiny corporate expressions of impact, what difference do you think it's made in the lives of people involved? I think around 2018 it started and the impact on the lives of the, the refugees and asylum seekers is, is just massive and, you know, only they will be able to really tell you. However, it's 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 an hour, you know, a week for them to, to really forget about the problems and the opportunity for them to get a chance to just, you know, just burn some calories, enjoy the company of other people that they might not, you know, otherwise see during the week. But in terms of the the coaches as well, it's a really good opportunity for them to build their cultural understanding and their cultural awareness of different communities. Because when are you ever going to come in contact with you know, refugees or asylum seekers if you're not proactively going to chat, chat to that group? So I think it's been really helpful for everyone involved. A lot of the issues around sport development is going through monitoring evaluation and demonstrating impact and sustainability. And there's almost a reliance on assumption particularly in my own work so this isn't a criticism what goes on there it's probably more of, of what i've done myself but there's, there's an assumption of, of impact rather than a demonstrated evidential proof of that do you know of any mechanisms of monitoring evaluation that have been undertaken to showcase any impact of this program or others you've been involved in don't think there's been much thought gone into that, to be honest. There should be more because I think there's more to the to the football angle rather than just saying, okay, this is the one hour football week, and and leaving out that there's there's more they they should be doing in terms of more around the education piece. What else can they support with? Because these are people who are looking to rebuild lives. They could have been, you know, really strong professionals in a certain area, you know, before they got here, and now they have to start from scratch. They've probably got knowledge in other areas, and how can refugees themselves share knowledge with their own people as well as to us that haven't got those lived experiences so there's a lot of knowledge people have but are not sharing yeah i couldn't agree more so what kind of areas do they come from is it all just around the preston area was it was a bit further afield and that's how people coming in from burnley and berry or what's the score there i say predominantly preston area and some even as far as into the town center because it's in play football in ingle and a lot of them can't afford the bus or they actually walk it or they cycle it so they're making their own way there which shows the value of the one hour session you know traveling there probably takes an hour playing football an hour traveling back so they're actually committed to that and i think it's the environment that's created with with the volunteer coaches who are students that's the the kind of power of the club it's all run by volunteers and a lot of the volunteers are our students so they give opportunities to students to get their coaching badges to build their own cultural awareness and think about other ways to engage with people that aren't don't have English as a first language. And they have to be creative because it's, they're probably speaking Arabic, Farsi, or one of those languages for you to like properly talk in full on English um, during a training session. They're probably not going to understand. So, 
it gets them thinking a bit differently as well. And if you look at like the Premier League kicks program, which is obviously run in the context of individual Premier League clubs, but they would often have their sessions on Friday night, quite late at night. And that was in a view to reducing antisocial behaviour. The refugee football takes place on a Friday night, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying that refugees would otherwise be involved in disorderly behaviour, but do you think there's an element that giving them something to do at a time when they might be involved in less socially constructive behaviours? Is there any element of behavioural issues that, that are faced or are people just really grateful for the hour and you just alluded to how it's valued? Are there any kind of behavioural challenges that are faced and do you think the timing of it is at all relevant to that? For the people that I know and that I've come in contact with in Preston, I don't feel like there is much antisocial behaviour within the refugee community. I think they're here to rebuild their lives and I think that's the main thing. They're here to build connections. They really want to work hard at college. I've seen a lot of them, you know, progress into university. So what happened with the Premier League kicks, that's a different story to what the provision is on, on the Friday night. And I don't think there is that correlation here. Mm. Yeah, from what I know, a lot of them are, you know, working really hard. So in those professions where they haven't been able to get those qualifications yet, so they are barbers or they are working in the car washes or they're in those jobs, but they're actually saying, OK, how do I get into university? And actually, uh, some of them, when I used to volunteer at the Red Cross, I used to you know, cook the dinners and serve the dinners uh, and chat to them. And, you know, the more I got to know them, the more like, OK, what do you do? Or, you know, they're asking me, where are you? I said, oh, my UCLan, you know, it's just down the road. And then they're asking me, oh, what kind of degrees do you do? And what's on offer? And they're into engineering. Well, engineering was the big one. And they went, oh, how can I get into that? You know, I just had a DM the other day from one of the, the refugee the connections and the kind of relationships you build. I don't think those go away. And that's like the power of football. It, it builds other connections and people will get in touch with you in other ways to kind of pursue their dreams. And I think that connection between education and footballs for me, is rewarding. For a lot of people, they may just see this as a the one hour a week engagement. And a lot of critics of programmes like this, are like, what can an hour a week do? And what about the rest of the week? So firstly, I'd like you to respond to that. You know, if someone said it's only an hour a week, what does it matter? And secondly, you've just spoken about the fact that you've volunteered at Red Cross as well. So that speaks to a, a level of engagement with refugees that's beyond football that goes towards the more humanitarian needs that we can call football developmental to differentiate. What connections do you think that's had and what benefit for you has it had to be able to engage with refugees knowing a little bit more about their story rather than just turning up and playing football and then everyone going about their separate lives? Mm-hmm. So in terms of the, the one hour a week, you'd love to have more hours. I'm sure that the, the refugees and asylum seekers, they'd love to have more hours, but it's just it's the cost of the grids and, and all the other elements and the cost, really. But I think the benefits they get is it's something to look forward to. And it's it's a lot of about word of mouth. So who they get in contact with in their classrooms and who they see and, you know, in their social circles, a lot of them are socialising in cafes. And that's where they build and say, OK, oh, there's f- football on Friday. Can you make it? Or, and that's like, you know, something that they look forward to. So I think they would love more time. And one way I was trying to do that when I was on the sports events module and we had the, the refugee and asylum seekers playing with other refugees and asylum seekers, boys and girls mixed together. And, and that was led in partnership with the Preston's College. And they didn't have any provision, you know, at lunchtime, let's go and play on the grids. Why is that provision not there? And so it was about 
linking with a college to say, look, this is what's possible. Look, they're enjoying themselves. They're having a laugh. They're running around and <laughs> earning off the calories. It's on your own ground, so you won't have to pay for it. But it's about building that awareness with the staffing over there. Say, look, you've got sport coaching, sports students at, at the college get them to run the sessions. And it's about how do we create those sustainable models so that you can step away from it one day and say, look, they can lead it themselves. So ideally, what's been happening at the soccer centre is refugees and asylum seekers have been now going through their coaching badges. They've been going through refereeing badges. You know, eventually we shouldn't have to have, you know, anyone from the club standing there looking over it. They should be able to just self-organise. And I think that's the point they need to get to, really. To make yourself redundant. <laughs> yeah. I'm not being flippant in that. That's a developmental model is not just to have a constant reliance on provision but empower and enable and offer opportunities for people to create their own frameworks for leading these sessions that's a good thing you, you talk about the cost who, so who pays it'll come from the actual club they might get a discounted rate if they're block book and they say we're going to hide the grid for 50 weeks mm. But the refugees, they don't have to pay anything. All the kits provided. They do a lot of collections like boots, shin pads, socks. They just have to come and turn up, basically, uh, and everything else is provided. Is it just training or do they play in a league? Some of them play in certain leagues. I think you can only play if you're have got refugee status and you've gone through some sort of clearance to be able to you know, play. You've got to meet some certain conditions. You can't just go in and join a league. With the FA, they've got some certain guidelines, so... You know, if a player has potential and they want to play in a more organised sport, in a competitive sport, they have to kind of say that. And then we're working with the Red Cross, you know, try to try to work through their their status. Yeah, I understand on one side why the FA do that, because it's a monitoring requirement for people to be registered. But I also think if they're not being paid, why do they need to be officially recognised in terms of the status? Because obviously when you go to a new country and you seek asylum, you don't automatically be a refugee. You have to have that status given to you by the state in which you've claimed asylum. Because you've got different communities, asylum seekers and refugees, do you find that there's a difference between those that have had the status? Do you find that there's assistance or competition between them or you know, communication between those who've got it and those who haven't? You know, how does that dynamic unfold in the context of the refugee football? So one of the big things is a lot of them can be living in Preston one minute and then in the next minute they can be living in Leyland or they'll move to Southport. They'll they'll be moved because they don't have the refugee status, so they don't have that stability. And I think that's a worry for a lot of them. So, you know, they're not worried about their education. They're worried about where their next meal is coming from or where they're going to live. Or sometimes I choose them between heating and eating, you know, and it can be quite scary sometimes. Can you just repeat the question again? So just my head's just because... <laughs> I generally can't remember what I just asked. <laughs> this is the problem yeah. when you don't have a, a structured interview or at least semi-structured, don't write some questions down. But the question was about in the like the difference between the status of someone being an asylum seeker and a refugee, is there any like competition or friction or support and assistance, communication? How does that dynamic unfold in the context of being a refugee in yeah. this football setting? On the field, everyone's the same. Everyone's in the same kit. There's no, oh, your shoes are better than my shoes. And it's very much an equal playing field. No one really cares about, you know, what country you're from. And I think, you know, football is basically like that friendship tool and it, and it brings everyone together. So that's the power it has. The only thing that they didn't like was calling it a refugee and asylum seeker football. They just want to call it football. Right. Because um, why would you want to be, oh, you're a refugee? You know, are you coming to refugee football? Like, it's just a title, it's a label. 
it's like stereotype you know people just want to be footballers just come football and I kind of felt that when when they said that to me I was like yeah you probably hate people call you just just your label it's probably not a nice feeling when you said that it kind of reminded me of SEN context and mm-hmm. a lot of people don't like to be labeled and they certainly don't like to be referred to by a label of, a, of a, a differing level of ability or whatever that might look like. So it, it kind of makes sense. And particularly when we're not talking about different abilities, but we're talking about a status which has been imposed upon them in many respects, I would suggest. So that doesn't surprise me. So, so what do you do about that as coaches? Because I suppose on the one hand, you need the consciousness that you're dealing with a quite specific demographic that might need support, linguistic cultural, social, maybe even financial, you know, if someone can't afford to get the bus on, you know, there, there might be mm-hmm. requirements like that. Or to what extent might the coaches and those involved in the organisation of it want to remove the tags as much as possible? Mm-hmm. A big challenge is obviously you go through your level one football, you go through your safeguard in your first stage, but, but really if you're coaching refugee football, there's different challenges that you're going to come across and I feel that's kind of like learning on the job like no one ever tells you that's probably something you know the FA need to look at in terms of when you do your safeguarding module when you do that course could there be an element of okay these are the particular issues that are related to refugee football or Islamophobia because you know a lot of them come from Muslim countries not all of them but maybe you know some specific stuff around anti-semitism training within that and I think that's been spoken about but you know nothing's ever been done and I know football clubs are like moving towards you know trying to be more inclusive and trying to upskill coaches in their knowledge so that you know if they ever were to come in contact with refugees they, they actually have some baseline knowledge of okay if this happens or this is how I can adapt my session to be more inclusive or you know make sure I'm you know using the right terminology. I mean you've touched on a really central concern which is how you prepare prospective students because on the one hand you say listen we've got this free workforce with undergraduate students who are on a coaching degree or in your case sport business management but on the other hand you've got a hugely complex dynamic in which to try and engage that probably requires quite a lot of experience but then you don't have the money so you probably opt towards using those with less experience because it's cheaper to organize there's probably a little bit of friction between those two considerations but in terms of the provision of training opportunities how are those who coach on this taught and prepared to run these sessions and to be involved generally in in the program I don't think, I don't, I don't, well, not from the FA anyway, because they've got a whole strategy at the minute and working with, you know, Amnesty UK, working with their women's football officer. There's no training module that you can do. It's, I really think it's like learning on the job. You shadow maybe the lead coach and you see what kind of things he's saying or how he's, you know, doing the demonstrations or using like certain words, writing on the whiteboard, etc. But I feel like more could be done. You've got to be sensitive when it comes to these kind of topics. So, yeah, there probably is more the, the FA could do with, with other bodies working with Fair Network and other bodies. And you just mentioned that a whiteboard there. So are there some situations where the, the refugees are brought into classrooms and have any input beyond the, the technicalities and the maybe the tactical aspects of football? Is it Does it go beyond that to wider issues? And is there a different environment in which those sessions are led in a classroom? Does that happen? So no, it's, everything's just on the pitch. And again, I feel like there's other areas where 
things could be developed, whether that's mm. working with the college, whether that's working with other you know, stakeholders to try and put more of a, a wider programme together because they're learning loads of skills through just playing football. But mm. you want to set them up for life as well. You know, how are we building the other things that I'm passionate about, like employability skills? Like how are we building, you know, their awareness of what to do after they finish college or that kind of piece there? Capacity building is a big part of that. And I suppose from, from the FA point of view, refugee football will be such a minuscule part of, of their overall provision. And they're constantly having different sections of society make demands upon them. So from one point of view, I can kind of understand why it might not be the top of their agenda. And everyone might be looking to everyone else saying, well, whose responsibility is it? And who should we get support from? And it may be that bodies like yours or the club involved probably have far more expertise and knowledge and experience to be able to run a programme like that, rather than it being imposed from the FA, led perhaps by someone who might be an FA employee who doesn't have the experience. So I agree that it's a good idea, but I wonder who should be driving that and who should be involved in the leadership of that, because I'd much rather attend a workshop on this led by you than an FA employee, for instance, because I know you've got the wealth of experience. There's a lot of like knowledge sharing that should be happening, but isn't happening when it comes to like refugee football in the UK. It's like different pockets, like Burnley. What, like one hour away? Do they talk to each other? You know, just people in the Northwest, are, are we talking to each other about what we're doing? You know, they've got yeah. Clarets Welcome, like, and then they're speaking with Sir Tom Finneysock Centre. And, you know, how can we get the refugees here speaking with, you know, the, the refugees over there to build some, you know, other wider connections? And, you know, why isn't there a league going, maybe like a refugee league in the Northwest? But there is good stuff happening, but everyone wants to own their own and not share. Or, but then what's the point? Because, if your aim is to get more people supporting others to rebuild lives, you want to do that on a, ma- on a mass scale. So, You've basically unwittingly uncovered essential challenge and friction that's being communicated in my book because I've worked on 30 programmes across six continents, really different contextual variety that's involved in those. And that is often the case that even when you've got programs that know about each other and often they don't and they just live in their own separate silos but even when they're aware of each other there's competition for resources people develop modules and develop models and then don't share them with others that's a problem we're not sharing expertise and we haven't got a centralized system one thing i was going to ask you was to what extent is the connection between different refugee communities but it doesn't sound like there's much yeah Maybe it's like, like you say, the FA are, are restricted with their, their resource there, but their EDI team isn't that big and it's just one person's responsibility to do the whole of refugee football in England. So, but yeah, there's definitely, you know, knowledge sharing that needs to happen. But one of the roles that I recently went for was, because I know before I didn't even answer your question, but it was about getting involved in the Red Cross, where that led to. So I recently applied for that Amnesty UK job, uh, the women's football officer, and I got to the interview stage. And then, well, they selected someone from who was already working in football at Fulham. So I was like, fair enough. One of the job re- responsibilities was to create a leadership programme. And, and I think this is quite interesting because a lot of, I'm not making like a generalistic comment, but a lot of the countries that the refugees come from, whether that's, you know, Somalia, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, the kind of culture there is okay the woman stays home cooks cleans raises children doesn't really you know pursue education or, or work so for that program it was create a women's leadership program you know and try and empower women you know to be you know leaders in their community so they get more refugee women playing but i'd like to see okay there's no like a men's football officer for you know amnesty uk or anything but i feel like 
if we can get men through some sort of leadership kind of program as well, there would be potentially male allies because they'll start to understand actually how can we change cultural attitudes because this is what was the norm and values in your home country but actually in the UK we're, we're trying to become more of aggressive and how they can make a better life for their their women as well and I'm quite passionate about like women empowerment. And which I know about you and respect about you. My experience of refugees is that they're incredibly resourceful people and they're the people despite the narrative particularly from far-right commentaries in, in, in the UK which contest this but they're the people that have gone through incredible challenges to get to England and they offer far more than they take to society generally which statistically is definitely true whether you look at about it on an economic scale or or more broadly to involve kind of cultural aspects and when you look at what the the potential issues that, that might be faced from those communities one thing that there might be a slight issue over is the involvement of females because if they've come from Muslim countries where there is a level of expectation on gender roles within the countries that some of which you just alluded to there, where they don't have a strong level of female involvement in different sections of society, because it's culturally not seen as how those societies are set up for different reasons, a lot of which will be on religious grounds. So how, as a woman who's also a Muslim, like how have you found that process of navigating that space to be able to lead these coaching sessions amongst men that might be maybe reluctant to some degree to, to be led by a woman have you found any instances of that or is it different do they understand the difference because they're now in the uk and things are done differently there how have you found that experience i think it's been easier for them to connect with someone like me than as opposed to someone who wasn't muslim because when you know when you first say salam to someone it means peace you're automatically getting a connection and then you, you might say a few more arabic words and then you know how are you and you know and it kind of like oh right someone's you know speaking the same language as me and when someone speaks the same language as you you're automatically like clicking so i think that helped a lot just kind of having that knowledge of you know coaching sessions and being organized and then kind of taking you seriously when you're actually you know knowing what you're talking about and i think a lot of it is the way i facilitate or do things to like bring people with me say what do you think rather than that dictator or authoritarian style but actually how you create leaders from within the the group you're working in and give them opportunities to lead that's the kind of style that i that i go for what might see from that is that in the layers of difference and the layers of demographic separation, what might matter more than, than gender might be language, might be religion, might be culture that you can kind of speak into, which is great from your point of view. What about a blonde female Christian or secular coach with no understanding that's on a sport degree that doesn't have all your experience? I, I would imagine there's a very different level of engagement between that person and you. Have you seen from any of the other coaches that are involved, have you seen any really struggle with how to interact? And in those cases, is there any mechanism for them to develop and to grow and to learn how to, to do it better? There are some very year one coaches who haven't possibly, you know, gone through their you know, full coaching badges yet that are just observing. A blonde, a blonde girl has got involved. But she's she's got lots of experience. She's she's able to articulate what she wants from the session to kind of you know direct it. If I had to flip on his head, I'd have to say if you're a blonde woman and you you were a newbie, you didn't really know what you were doing. They might not take you seriously because they can speak in their own language and because they, they might be saying things. They might not be fully you know engaging with the session or listening to you. They are respectful people, but I I, I think it's also about you know they're here for an hour. They're they're taking their time out of their day 
they want proper coaching if they're going to travel that way they want like a proper session where they're going to sweat and mm -hmm. they don't have time to be twiddling their thumbs basically so for the coaches that that are new that really want to like learn about refugee football and thinking okay i'll come down i think it's important that they shadow first rather than lead the session i think there definitely needs to be more more done in terms of um supporting the coaches i think it's all right for the for the club to just stand behind the gates and say okay you go in you, you know you just shadow but Sometimes it's not enough. You need to build some some other knowledge. The club's board, they should come together and think, right, we've got this refugee football. It's been running for a couple of years. How are our coaches? You know, what does this current training look like before we put them in that grid? Because if a refugee came up to you and said, I've got this particular issue going on at home, how do you even respond? You know, does a student know how to respond to that? It might not be anything football related. It might just be a personal issue. Mm -hmm. What's a student going to do in that situation or are they going to panic? You know, we need to set them up to, to succeed in those environments. Yeah, I think shadowing is is a brilliant process to go through in that you learn from others, you learn from their demonstrations and interactions and then you, you almost earn the right through that experience to be able to have that exposure yourself. But when British students or, you know, Western people generally go to the Global South or go to places where the, some of these programs take part in different parts of the world. Often you don't have the time, so they have to kind of learn almost straight away. So I think one of the advantages with having these sessions and communities and clubs engaging with people from the Global South now living in the Global North or, you know, refugees now living in the West or whatever country they move to, is that the engagement happens from the point of view of the volunteers the British volunteers, it's happening an hour once a week and they can be involved in that for two years and kind of build that up. That dynamic seems to, to work better to enable them to learn on the job and to, and to shadow people. Whereas I feel these two week programmes that happen, and I know you've done these yourself, so you'll probably understand this. So when you went, you went to Morocco, didn't you? Yeah, I went to Morocco, but Greece was refugees. Um, so I've got a bit to say about that, but yeah. Okay. When you go to Morocco or Greece, and you're suddenly kind of in that environment. You're not given a long time to, to shadow other people. It's you're straight in. And if first impressions really count, they can be the, the most challenging ones. And if your first session doesn't go so well, or the, the, if you're thinking, oh, they're not having me, or you know, they're not really buying into this, or the dynamic's not really working, and you've got to go again the next day to the same people or different. So that that can be a challenge. But anyway, why don't you speak to some of the other experiences you've had in, in Morocco and Greece and how that's helped your development? I had to make sure I took my whistle because I ain't shouting up. <laughs> so I had my whistle, I was all prepared. A bit of football and multi-sports in Morocco. So we took football kits. So we're visiting an orphanage, we're visiting a drug and alcohol rehab centre. So I said, oh, that's interesting. So I jumped on the community leadership <laughs> trip because uh, I knew a lecturer there and yeah, went on it. So that was really good. I thought I'm not going to go empty handed, you know, to an orphanage, it's a bit rude. <laughs> so I just contacted my local mosque that I went to when I was younger and a, a head teacher said, you know, how can I help? I said, can you just put in your newsletter um, anyone who's got any spare football kits or just, you know, drop them at your office. And then I filled a whole, you know, massive suitcase full of football kits and took them. So we gave them football kits, but the coaching, it was different because I thought they would, would, would spoke French, but they were speaking um, Moroccan Arabic. But when I went to the uh, drug and alcohol rehab centre, they were speaking French, so that was a lot more. They were older, so but I had to do a lot of demonstrations with the with the younger kids, and uh, I think they listened, yeah, really well, and they were warming to the to the other coaches as well. But the issue was they weren't coaches, so I was they were just like students on another course. 
So it's just kind of building their confidence as well. And you're just jumping in a new environment. So the one in Greece, that was actual refugees from Afghanistan. So a few of them spoke English. And when I spoke, there was one person in the classroom all, all the time who, you know, had really good English. So they were translating kind of things I said, made, made sure I was speaking in, you know, simple English, drawing diagrams. They basically did lots of different problem solving tasks, talking to each other, building their communication and teamwork skills, public speaking. I only jumped in that environment because I enjoyed the stuff I was doing at British Red Cross on the football. So that gave me like another international experience. I feel like my degree is in sport business management, but I'm, I'm actually becoming more passionate about like community leadership, community development. And I've seen some, you know, loads of new roles coming up at the, the Lancashire County Council at the minute, you know, supporting refugees to rebuild their lives, whether that's employability, finding them English language opportunities. And, you know, you can embed sport in that. So it's heartening to know that there are those roles available. I teach on a, a master's at the University of, of Central Catalonia and I did a session for them. I kind of run one of their modules and as part of that, the students and they're, they're master's students, they're quite high level caliber students, quite experienced. And what they have to do is develop a model to engage with refugees in you know, Barcelona or various cities around the areas in which they live. It was interesting to see when they did the research, how little provision there was for those people and when they actually thought about it, they thought, well, yeah, sport's actually a really useful avenue to be able to engage with these people, but the provision isn't really there. And the roles that you've just alluded to, like they're not, they don't really exist in, in different parts of the world. I think Greece, obviously geographically makes a massive impact, but they've tended to take more refugees. Is, is that what led you to go there? And did you see anything different in how Greece treats its refugees compared to the UK? I think they've got a better setup compared to other countries, like say, in terms of supporting them with like that informal education. We visited the Moria camp. Um, some of the there's always fires going on there. There was actually um, an organisation that I googled before I got there called Movement on the Ground, and the university haven't linked with them yet. But I think it's a really it's like the Zambia trip. I, th- I think we should really link with them because they use uh, the values from. FC Barcelona Foundation basically um, get Greek children playing with with the refugees and they teach them values through sport and I think it was brilliant but we didn't go there for that but I was kind of encouraging them to build that partnership yeah there's a lot of stuff there but the but the kind of sentiment between the Greek nationals and the the refugees especially at Lesbos um, there's more you know refugees because coming from Turkey coming that way there's a bit of tension there um, yeah. There's people living very difficult lives and there's people faced with making difficult decisions on a daily basis in in trying to incorporate them within communities. So you know, none of this is, is easy. And if you've ever been to a refugee camp, if you've ever worked with refugees, it doesn't reflect the very safe, stable, consistent framework of, of living that we have, have in the UK. So I think the first thing to, to avoid is the expectation of that it will look like it does in the UK or environments in which people live because it's just it's, life is very different for people in different parts of the world and when if they, they have migration they've taken that opportunity which has been forced upon them creates very difficult living environments and very different agendas for people so a mindfulness of that and acceptance of that is important I think engaging refugees. Um, how, how did you come to get involved in the, in the Greece trip? How did that happen? So I went to Morocco in March and it was the same same course, community leadership. They mainly choose their students and if there's, there's places aren't filled, they open it to like everyone else. But the Centre for Volunteering and Community Leadership is a UCLan area for volunteering. 
I went on their website because I logged my hours, you know, when I was volunteering for Red Cross. And I was just looking at their articles and this guy, and they had one from 2018 where they went to Morocco orphanage and they went to a drug and alcohol rehab centre. I thought, oh, that looks good because it's a discounted um, trip. The university subsidised it. It was only £300 to go. So I was like, oh, for a week and everything's included. That was through me doing my research on, you know, something I was passionate about and actually bothering to contact someone. And I, and I just wonder, you know, whether other students want to do something like that. But then I only got to Greece because we were in Morocco. They were like, oh, we're going to Greece in a couple of months. I was like, oh, Greece, what are you doing there? And then they were like, refugee. <laughs> you know, it's a lot about connections and that social capital. Finish my dissertation, then off I go. Social capital can only be purchased through proactivity. So there's few people as proactive as you. So then you kind of think back to the you know, the nodes and your network and the processes and the communication and how things have happened for you. It does kind of follow, doesn't it? So it doesn't surprise me that it was when you were in Morocco that the opportunity for Greece came around. And I, I didn't realise that that was the connection, but I'm actually glad it does because it, it does paint a picture of, of how these things can happen. And whatever a student might be looking to go into, that's probably good advice to, to consider. So you did sport business management degree. I supervised your undergrad and your, your master's dissertation and you were a great student, but studying that degree, it's a diverse programme and there weren't loads of elements of, of focus on, on what happens in developing communities because a lot of business and management focuses is more about following where the money is, mm. as you'll know. And even running the module in Catalonia, I framed it around the non-profit sector. So I didn't frame it around developmental needs. I framed it around, right, you need to understand the public and the private sector. You also need to understand the voluntary sector and within that we'll look at non-profit. And then we'll look at contextual applications of that. And then we'll look at refugee communities and then we'll look at the use of sports. So that's how I approached it. So my aim was how do I teach these people about the problems going on on communities and how sport can be useful. But I'm framing it in terms that made sense within their own studies. That's how I had to do it. I've tried to do that really within part of, of your degree, but it, it is a marginal aspect of it. But one of the things that I, I tried to do in the, the module on events management that we had so you were given opportunities within that module to develop your own events. Mm. So can you just talk to me a, a little bit about that, what the event was and how you approached that and how you involved other students in your group and bring them along with you in that process? Yes, yeah, so this is probably the best module. <laughs> I talk about it all the time in interviews. <laughs> so where did it start, right? It was to develop a, an event that's meaningful. So I was thinking, right, okay, well, what am I passionate about? But I kind of centred it around what I was rather than the group, and then I was just putting them all along. But they were like, oh, right, that sounds good. And so we all had, like, roles of who we were going to contact. And, you know, uh, so I took Luke to um, Preston North End Football Club. And this is a, another strange thing. So Tom Finney Soccer Centre do their own football, but the Preston North End Football Club, they don't have a refugee offering which is another story, but, you know, wh wh why is that the case? So uh, we went to speak with the head of the, the trust at the time and you know, outline what we were what we were doing at the Preston College, what this event was, what the module was. And I think that helped us a lot because we were looking for match tickets to support the refugee f um, refugees to attend, uh, you know, a P&E game, which they probably don't even get the chance to do. Assigned football from the players, trophies, 
and and then new clan goodie bags so we were promoting you know the club the club were you know getting some visibility the university in terms of like the next route after Preston College and I kind of had a, a big picture okay it's not just a football match it's not just us doing this and then ticking it off and writing an assignment I was putting more thought into it and trying to get you know the other students on board as well so I was quite passionate about getting other students not on the sport business course involved so from my volunteering at Sertan Finia. I know a couple of confident coaches who had also been working with the refugee football. I said, look, I'm looking at doing this at Preston College. Are you available at this day and time to run a, a two-hour session? And they were like, yeah, yeah, fine. They ran it, sport coaches, and then we stood back. So we were like there to just manage the event, health and safety, all that kind of stuff. Let the people that have done a degree in sport coaching coach. And then I thought, okay, I need some coverage of this and also support a student who's doing a degree in sport journalism. So I contacted someone I was doing some work with at Lancashire FA on the Disability League there, um, you know, the FA People's Cup. He was supporting there. So I got his number and this is all networks because I love it. <laughs> I'm like, I need you, I need you. And then I said, I said, I'm doing an event. Are you free? And he goes, yeah, yeah. And obviously that helps him build his portfolio and stuff for the yeah. show. And then he he helped do the interviews. So when you watch that YouTube video, he's interviewing me. And I like that because it's it's me taking a step back. And that's my leadership style. I, I don't want to dictate everything, but I let other people with the skills run the show. I think it's just about knowing the right people and then connecting everything together. And then they interviewed like the ESOL teachers at the college. And they said, oh, this is a great event. But I think the the fact that you told us to create the video made me want to put more work into it rather than a two minute video saying, look, it's a football match, here we go, right. Yeah. Okay, these are the other stakeholders that got involved, you know, you clan, you know, the soccer centre was there, someone from Lancashire FA was there. So, so yeah. I was quite pleased with it, to be honest. I think there's, I mean, there's a few things around that. I mean, firstly, going in reverse order, the, the video. I mean, I've sort of for 20 odd years in universities and had students create work that no employer ever sees and wanted to kind of bridge that gap. So, you know, an employee is not going to read a 10,000 word dissertation. I might not read a 1500 word report, but they might watch a four minute video. So I wanted students to be able to create videos that showcase their own community capacity and their engagement in a real life setting, like an event that they've created. And then that they can put a link to that. They're applying for a job. And so a prospective employee can see that directly. So it was partly about the students own professional development. But it was also partly about creating awareness for what the programme actually is. And then it was about teaching future students about how the event management process looks like and how people can set up their own events. Because the idea that the next year's incoming students on that module will watch the videos of last year's events and say, OK, don't copy these, but these are the lessons learned. So gradually over time, the event management process gets better. That was my thinking in, in developing that. And I was glad to see that you take the lead. I can remember us having a conversation about you saying about what events you do. And I was really hoping that you'd say, do it on the refugee football, because I knew you were involved on the Friday night anyway. But I also knew that there was people in your group that had no experience of that. And if you talk about the students who are on the sport coaching degree, you've given them the opportunity. Perhaps not so much with the the journalism students because you can just let them go and be proactive in that their own space and, and make the videos you know shoot the footage and interviews but for you you talked about this kind of democratic rather than autocratic leadership style that you've got which, which i like about you but did you have to not train but did you have to guide the students going into it did you have to give them much advice for the students who were on your team in the event management 
section on, on the module or the sport culture students. What did you say to them leading up to the event? Anything? Yeah, we had um, a number of meetings and giving them some sort of responsibility, like you, you can hold them to account, like, OK, have you have you been able to do this or are you struggling with this? What can we do to help? And so it was a good experience for me kind of trying to get everyone to drive it to a common goal. But the uh, sport coaching, well, the ones that were were involved, actually, they already had experience with with refugees. With, they were doing the football. I think one of them was a, was a volunteer who hadn't. So he was joining this kind of event and shadowing the, the more knowledgeable coaches. So that was that was good in terms of their development. But the idea was, yeah, don't have this event. And then it just, you know, stop. The Certain Funny Soccer Centre was there with sign up forms to say we've got Friday night free football. OK, got this event. Brilliant. What's next? OK. If you don't already come, come. If you if you already come, you know, get more people to come. So it was an opportunity for them to showcase their offering as well. Okay, I've not got many more questions left, but one thing I want to talk about, and this is perhaps the more difficult challenge in areas to respond to. It gets a bit political, this, but I think it's fair to say that people in the UK and perhaps people in the EU and maybe even the West generally, there is often an expectation and a generally held view about refugees and in many cases it's not particularly optimistic and kind in terms of the the views that might be held and this might be informed by the media that they, they consume and we can talk about the right-wing press in the UK and the challenge that might pose so broadly speaking from the perspective of refugees that you've engaged with how difficult an environment is it just to move to and then live in the UK for refugees? Yeah, like you say, people get the news from the Daily Mail or the Daily, <laughs> the Daily Star, which isn't helpful. But I think a lot of them find it welcoming, well, impressed in any way, because they quickly find their own people. And I've noticed that they quickly bond and they know where they meet. So a lot of them meet in the, the city mosque um, next to the bus station. And that's one of the mosques in Preston that's probably the most multicultural. So if you go to mosques in Deepdale, this is quite interesting, but if you go to mosques in Deepdale, they're mainly like Indian, Pakistani. But if you go to the mosque in the city mosque, you'll get like all sorts of nationalities. That is probably the most multicultural one there is. So that's where they meet other refugees and that's where they create that sense of belonging and community, which I think is easy and places of worship as well as a football pitch probably one of the, the biggest areas as well as everywhere else they go the college and mm. and they, they tend to live with each other as well so they won't just live right. in a house on their own they, they tend to live in you know a house with six people or mm. seven people and they, they eat together they you know they sleep in the same house mm. they, they do a lot of things together and then they'll go and meet another household and go and have coffee or whatever so and coffee <laughs> Coffee and, you know, in their culture, we just can't have a day without coffee. <laughs> but you quite often talk about the environments in which people live, and that's far more central to the appreciation of their own existence than an hour's football once a week. But I was talking to a PhD student, former student of mine, yesterday. He lives in Belfast. He lives on his own, and particularly with COVID and stuff, and it's really affected his experience of the city and experience of doing a PhD generally. And I said, so it would have been big difference if you'd have lived with people, which is perhaps not possible with COVID. And we, we tend to talk cities like Dublin are known for this, where when refugees live in places, they'll, they'll quite often live in houses where there's huge numbers of people living in one house, partly because of the cost of rent in cities like that, which might not be quite as much pressure in Preston for that. But still within those environments, living with five or six people, like you just mentioned, that's actually really good for them to have a social network and to be able to share expertise as well as perhaps the cost of, of living generally. So I think there's a lot of positives around that. 
But one phrase that you used before, and I smiled inside when you used it, you said, you know, they find their own people. Because I, I ran a coaching program for refugees in Sydney in 2007, and I interviewed someone who was essentially involved in that, and they used that exact phrase. But I'm sure it's not uncommon, but wherever people are across the world, there's a central significance of finding your tribe of finding your own people and it might be on your own male or your own muslim or you both come from an arab speaking country or whatever it might be but that's so significant isn't it to how people then cope and then thrive within the new environment whether it's sydney or dublin or, or preston and it's really interesting how that takes place so over time when you engage with the refugees through the football, do you get more of a sense of just how important those dynamics are and those their living situations and what they do with the time of the rest of the week and where they go to mosque and or church or whether they go to other social settings? Do you, do you find that that's really important to how they progress as members of a new society? Yeah, I think so. They, they stick with their own. However, on the football pitch, language isn't a barrier. So there might be people from different countries, but they'll all gel really quickly. But there are downsides, I'd say, by sticking with their own or the college or other bodies not doing enough to integrate them with people in, you know, living in Preston that are not refugees because of the English language barrier, because they're speaking their own language 24-7 mm-hmm. with their own kind. They're not challenging themselves other than going to the English class in college and how many hours they're, they're there, you know, per week. What I've heard from the ESOL teachers is, they need to be speaking more outside of their class. It's like learning a language. You can't just you know, do the bare minimum. You've got to practice it day in, day out. So I think wider stakeholders need to do more to get them integrating more with people living in Preston from non-refugee backgrounds. And I'm not really sure what the tolerance level is like in Preston in terms of refugees. I, I, don't, I haven't seen much, I guess, hostility in terms of you know, the, whatever comes out in the news. But then you just don't know, do you? Hate crime's not reported enough. Yeah, and I, and I think when you see someone in a baker in Preston, you don't look and say, what's that? Because if you walk around Preston, you'll see that anyway. So I think encountering people that look different, and female Muslim in, in traditional dress is just one example of that. But when you encounter people that look different on a regular basis, you're perhaps less inclined to look at people different. And 100 years ago, it might be someone with darker colour skin or you know, whatever that difference kind of looks like. I think there's a general multiculturalism within Preston that's perhaps more fitting environment for refugees from some parts of the world to move to and engage in and then perhaps feel comfortable in that they can go to a mosque because 100 years ago that might not have been possible for instance or even 30 years ago in, in some places. So as Britain's become more multicultural it's probably made it a more welcoming environment if only on a level of citizenry rather than what the politicians are, you know, the systems they're creating for for, for refugees to live in, but that's a level of politics perhaps for, for another time of their debate question. Thanks for that, Salika. That's really kind for you to give your time today and really insightful conversation and grateful that we've had the opportunity to do that. So thanks for contributing to the project and I hope it's been, been useful to anyone who's watched this session back. So thanks very much. Yep, thank you.